Okay, we'll be in 2 John this morning. <laughs> Some little letters sandwiched in between 1st and 3rd John. Sometimes you wonder how something so small gets in there, right? I mean, second and third John and, and Jude, and they're some of the shortest, they're just short little letters, and yet there's something in here that's important. This is why we're looking at it. Uh, everyone here probably knows the story of Pinocchio. Whether you've seen the movie or uh, maybe even read the book, there was a book written in the 1800s uh, that the movie's based on, loosely, very loosely. Uh, we all know that uh, there was a marionette who came to life and that when he lied, his nose grew uh, and then sprouted leaves and all kinds of other stuff. And there's an underlying theme in the story of Pinocchio that has to do with transformation. Over the course of the movie, Pinocchio transforms several times, actually, uh, from lifeless wooden marionette to wooden boy with some measure of life, from wooden boy to half donkey when he's got the ears growing and the tail coming out, uh, and then finally from wooden boy to real boy. In the beginning, this process of transformations begins when uh, Geppetto creates the wooden marionette and then wishes on a star that it would become real. And that night, the, uh, the Blue Fairy, and we're not giving any details about what makes her special, but she's the Blue Fairy, uh, she arrives and grants Pinocchio a measure of life, not full life, but a measure of life, telling him that if he's brave, truthful, and unselfish, he will one day become a real boy. Now, as the story unfolds, Pinocchio makes a series of poor choices ultimately landing him in the situation where he begins to turn into a donkey, uh, like the other boys around him that are playing and doing whatever they want. They're all turning into donkeys. Uh, and they're, what they don't know is that they're all about to be enslaved as beasts of burden for different reasons. And he, somehow Pinocchio manages to escape, and then he goes in search of his father's creator, Geppetto, uh, who has strangely, and they never really explained this uh, fully, he had gone out looking, but he got swallowed by a whale, uh, this, this whale called Monstro's gigantic whale. And uh, Pinocchio also then gets swallowed by the whale, and they escape the belly of the whale by building a fire that makes the whale sort of sneeze them out. Uh, Geppetto survives this, but Pinocchio does not. Uh, until the Blue Fairy gives him life once again, this time as a real boy for being brave, truthful, and unselfish, right? That's quite the story. And you might be wondering uh, what it has to do with our text this morning, and that's a fair question. Um, I think it will become more obvious as we dig into the text itself. Uh, but I will say up front that the story of Pinocchio is sort of a parallel of our own story in many ways. We, too, have been given a measure of life with the promise of a life more real than we can imagine. 
This real life also hinges on the truth, although for us it's not a matter of us being truthful, it's a matter of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we too have made poor choices and found ourselves enslaved, and we too need to be saved from the belly of the whale and the death that that represents. All that to say there are a lot of parallels between what John wrote in this second letter in the story of Pinocchio. So let's get into it. Follow along with me as we read 2 John, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard or had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. God bless the reading of his word. Okay. This letter begins in a very different way than 1 John. In that effort, John skipped any sort of formal reading and just jumped right into the meat of what he wanted to write. And the only thing that seems like a greeting is when John addressed his audience as my little children. But even that statement is made in terms of the larger point John was making about the Gnostic heresy. In this letter, John took a much more conventional approach by including a formal greeting and being more specific. And he addressed it to the elect lady. And already we have a good bit of divergence on who this was or could have been. Some commentaries say that this was terminology of the church, that the elect lady meant the church itself, that John was addressing a body of believers. And this is certainly possible, and there are things about the greeting in the letter which might be understood this way. But one thing is that John opens by addressing the chosen lady and closes by including greetings from the chosen sister. It's quite possible this was a reference to two connected churches in some way. Other commentaries claim that this was written to someone specific. Uh, the language of the greeting and the farewell at the end seems to support this idea as well. In the Greek, the term John used in verse 1 is 
eklepte kuria, which means the elect lady. But the word kuria is the feminine form of the Greek word for master or lord. It was used of someone who was head of a wealthy and prominent household. It's actually the same basic word used throughout the New Testament describing Jesus as Lord, kurios, which means that John was either addressing this letter to a specific church and somehow calling it Lord, or he was addressing it to a wealthy woman with a large household. Now, either one of those is possible. I don't fully understand which way it would be. Uh, but all of this is interesting to think about for sure. It's not of any major theological importance in the overall letter, so we're going to just move on past it. But I did think I needed to say a few things about it. Uh, now, in the first four verses, John mentioned truth five times. And that isn't by accident at all. He's going somewhere with this. Truth and falsehood were his main theme in this short letter. As in his previous writing, John was trying to distinguish between real faith and the Gnostic heresy that's still around, still doing all this. was written very close to the first letter. The entire intro revolves around this group of people who know the truth, love each other in the truth, and have truth abiding within them as a result of the good news. That a flesh and blood Jesus lived and died and rose again. We are probably all familiar with the basic idea of what truth is, right? The sun is a star. That's a basic truth. Caesar ruled the Roman Empire. That's also a basic truth. But the truth John was referring to here is something with a bit more substance to it, a bit more depth. Because John wasn't just referring to factual events that had happened at some point in the past or that could be widely known in the present. He was talking about the kind of truth that moves people to action. Sun, being a star, doesn't really move anyone to action. Caesar, being the ruler of the Roman Empire, in itself, doesn't really move anyone to action. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there's a truth that moves people to action. Because it doesn't allow anyone to just sort of nod their heads and go on about their business. It confronts each and every one of us with a reality that we must respond to. Whether we reject Jesus and go on about our lives or place our trust in him and surrender ourselves to his will, we are at the very least making a choice. And that choice impacts who we are and how we live. If I have rejected Jesus, I can act however I want. I am my own Lord, and my actions are based on whatever I decide to value in a given moment. And that may be perceived as good or bad by those around me, but ultimately they are based in me and my own way of thinking. In other words, they are necessarily self-centered because of where they are formed. But if I accept Jesus, I am rejecting my self-centered way in favor of his way. And as we've seen throughout this series so far, his way comes with a very 
different manner of living. It necessarily produces something within us. Now John called this eternal life. And we know from previous study that this was the life produced in us by the Holy Spirit. The life that then grew and changed us and caused us to live and act differently. Now, all of this is a result of what we do with the truth of Jesus and then what happens as a result. So when we see John talking about the truth abiding within us, we know what he meant. We know that he didn't mean some sort of afterlife insurance based on a simple mental acceptance of Jesus as our ticket to the great beyond. That's not what any of this was about. That's actually what the Gnostics basically believed. On the contrary, John meant that when we place our trust in Jesus as Savior and King, our entire way of life gets upended right here and now. <clears throat> he meant that the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and begins to produce eternal life in us, even now, that we begin to be changed. And as a result, that things within us and, and then our actions that lead out of us, they're never the same again. That our daily lives look different than they did before. That what we value is different than what we valued before. That how we think and talk and act is different than it was before. That we no longer belong to ourselves, but to Jesus, and that we submit to that still small voice within that calls us to the light, love, and life we can only find in Him. Sort of like that Jiminy Cricket trying to tell Pinocchio what was right and wrong. Now, as N.T. Wright, my, uh, one of my favorite theologians, he wrote on this subject, he said, truth for John seems to be something to do with a wholeness, a completeness of human life from the very first stirrings of thought and imagination all the way through to every detail of practical living. That means the intended outcome of the truth abiding within us is changed lives, both inside and out. So is that what is happening with each of us? Are we being changed? Not did we think some happy thoughts about Jesus and now we are on about doing our own thing till we die or he returns? Are we presently being changed? Because if we're not, that means we are either actively refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and change us, or we're not saved at all. There really isn't some sort of third option where we are saved but nothing changes. And we don't have to do anything. That's not how salvation works. That's not how eternal life works. Or some option where we are saved but we get to do whatever we want. Which is, that's the Gnostic way of thinking. That's not how this works. Truth abiding within us moves us to a way of life that looks like Jesus. A way of life that attracts people who are living in the darkness just like Jesus did. People who are broken and hurting and marginalized and pushed aside and in need. 
It's also a way of life that lives in harmony with other believers. A way that consistently strives toward forgiveness and reconciliation and unity. And this, be honest, this may be even more difficult. Because it means finding a way to work through our differences together. <clears throat> it means having difficult conversations when necessary so that we can be on the same page about proclaiming the gospel and living it out in our daily lives together. We don't have to look very far to see that the church in our time has serious problems in this area. We are divided and fractured and splintered into so many denominations and subgroups that it's no wonder the world doesn't pay attention to us. We can't really agree on anything. The hard truth is that we aren't all living like Jesus. Most of us aren't even saying the same things. We have preachers fixed on everything but the gospel, worried about building their own little kingdoms. We have professing believers more concerned about politics than the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus. We have one group saying one thing about who Jesus loves and another saying something different about who Jesus loves. And I could go on and on and on. It's as if the church maybe stepped on a landmine at some point and blew itself to bits. We can't hardly get along at any level. Does that seem like the way of Jesus to any of you? The way of the truth that John was referring to? The way of life the Holy Spirit would be producing in each of us? Or does that sound like we all need more work done in our hearts and minds? That we need to be much more discerning of what the Spirit is doing in us and a lot less depending on our own opinions. What is it that we read in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6? Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Is that what we're doing? Are we trusting the Lord with all our hearts? Or are we holding back and leaning on our own understanding because we don't want to give God full control of our lives? We can't act like this isn't a problem because it clearly is. In both Scripture and in our own experiences. None of us have it all figured out. None of us are perfect. Which means we need to be a lot more gracious in how we treat each other. We need to be a lot less prideful and a lot more compassionate and forgiving. Now in verse 4, John wrote that he rejoiced that some of the lady's children were walking in this truth. Which also makes it clear that some were not. There was a division there as well. It started very early on. This seems like the main point of the letter, then, that some people were growing in eternal life while others were stagnant. And so John wrote to remind them of what he had written in the larger letter, that believers were to love one another. And that was the guiding principle of life as a follower of Jesus then, and it still is today. Nothing has changed as far as that goes. 
If our lives don't show that we love each other, then why would anyone else be drawn to what we have? Why would anyone want to join a group of people who fight over God and the Bible and religious things? This is why John shifted gears beginning in verse 7 and began talking about all the deceivers and again mentioned the Antichrist. Not the left-behind version of the Antichrist so many evangelicals seem to think is hiding out in the shadowy halls of government just waiting for his chance to gain power and use it to make America part of a one-world government and all that craziness. Instead, John again used the word here just as he had in the first letter in reference to those who were at some point of the faith but who had rejected the truth of a flesh-and-blood Jesus in order to join the Gnostics in believing Jesus was only spiritual. And there are important implications attached to this. John was concerned about this because of the very stark difference between the Gnostic lifestyle, what their beliefs produced, and the lifestyle of a true Jesus follower. For example, if we believe Jesus was only spiritual being, here to ensure that we make it to some sort of spiritual heaven when we die, then it doesn't have much effect on our daily lives here, because everything here is corrupt, so how we live doesn't really matter at all. But if we believe Jesus came in the flesh, then ultimately his life will show up in our flesh. If we believe he lived and died and rose again, then ultimately we will live like him, and when we die, we will rise again like he did. The Gnostics were really only concerned with the future, with what happened after they died. But John was making it clear that Jesus' followers are just as concerned about what happens right here and now as what happens later. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, that means if we catch ourselves dismissing the Holy Spirit's pull in our hearts and minds and refuse to submit ourselves to the changes that the Lord wants for us, then we are living like the Gnostics, living like deceivers and the Antichrist. Anyone here want that? Anyone want to be Antichrist? If not, then we can't live like it. We have to be willing to undergo whatever renovation the Lord brings about in us so that we might love as Jesus loved. And that's what this whole thing is all about. In verse 8 9, John warned against being drawn away by the Gnostics and repeated his teaching about abiding with the Father and the Son. And then he said not to greet or welcome anyone who doesn't bring this teaching with them. And this might sound severe, but it's not a broad general statement to reject everyone who doesn't agree with us. That's not what this is. It's specifically targeted toward the Gnostic teachers or any teacher who might show up with a gospel that did not include the flesh and blood sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. 
In the Jewish way of thinking, those who presented themselves as teachers would be held to a very high standard. There's evidence of this not only in what John wrote, but also in James 3.1, where we read, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So when we read John's words here, warning against greeting or welcoming any such teachers, it makes sense. Part of the way that works in our time is that not just anybody should get up and teach the Bible. We need to take this very seriously, which means we really need to know what we believe and why. Not just what we think or what we were taught to believe when we were young, but what does Scripture actually say? We've seen this unfold in our study of John's letters as the only place in Scripture, 1 and 2 John, the only place in Scripture where the Antichrist is mentioned. 1 and 2 John. Don't have, they don't have any, any of the sort of crazy nonsense we might encounter in popular depictions of the end times. Nothing even close. Scripture actually corrects all those popular notions and opinions. But in order for the Holy Spirit to use Scripture to do this in our lives, we have to be both surrendered to the Holy Spirit and then actively studying our Bibles. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but I'm pretty sure that we don't all pray as often as we should, and I'm equally convinced that we don't all study the Bible like we should. There are a number of reasons for this, some maybe sort of innocent sounding, you know, maybe we get busy with daily life and the day slips away from us before we know it. Maybe we try to plan for it, but we don't know how or where to start. How do we do this? There are simple answers for these. Whether it's joining in on a Wednesday evening Bible study with us uh, or going online to order some study materials or devotionals, if we really want to study, there are ways to go about it. Tons and tons of ways. And I'm more than willing to help with that. But it might very well be that we just don't care enough. That our whole idea of faith is wrapped up in blessing meals and showing up on Sunday morning. As if that's all the apostles did. As if that's what turned the whole world upside down in the centuries following Pentecost. As if that's what John was hoping for when he wrote these letters. The gospel and this time was just beginning to spread, right? Just, just sort of stretching out and going different places, the little pockets of believers here and there. And it sprouted roots in various places based on those who were transformed at Pentecost and then went back home from Jerusalem to various spots and took the gospel with them. Uh, and then also the various missionary efforts of the apostles, uh, you know, Paul included and all the rest. But it was still young as a movement here sort of at the end of the first century. And John wanted a clear line of distinction between the Jesus followers and the Gnostics or any other group of anything else. He didn't want their teachers greeted kindly and welcomed into homes where they could entice young believers away. So he took a strict approach. 
don't let them in. Don't mix things up. I mean, it's, it's like brushing your teeth and then drinking apple juice or orange juice. You don't want to do that, right? Those two things don't go together. And we should take that approach too in this. And that means knowing what we believe and why. And that takes effort and can only be worthwhile if we are guided by the Spirit. Now, are we ready to make that kind of commitment in our lives? Are we ready to reorganize our entire lives around the principles we will find when we do? They may be different than what we've known or believed. Are we ready to stop letting anger get the best of us? Are we ready to forgive those who have hurt us and let go of our grudges? Are we ready to stop being judgmental about each other? Are we ready to have tough conversations so we can get along? Now, I could go on and on and on, but the main idea here is that every single one of us still has some changing to do, and we need to get on with it, me included. We need to open up our lives to the Holy Spirit so the darkness can be cleaned out with light, and we need to walk in that light. In closing this letter, John simply stated that he had a lot more to say, but he wanted to say it in person. He may, not, he may have intended to visit, it seems like he did, uh, at some point in the near future. But what this also tells us is that we should long for the same kind of interaction. In a world so full of technology that not only allows us to connect more readily than ever before, but also makes it way easier to remain isolated behind our screens, we need to follow John's example and try to communicate face-to-face -face when we can. I say this as someone uh, who's an introvert and doesn't enjoy too much of that and regularly hides behind my screen. I've been dealing with this for a while, especially this week, and seeing what John wrote at the end of this letter. It may mean that I need to wind up bugging some of y'all more often, so that might be a thing. Uh, I hope that doesn't frighten anyone. But John said this kind of personal interaction with other believers would make their joy complete. And I think that really is the key. If we aren't excited to spend time together, why is that? What needs to be addressed? What do we need to work through together so that we enjoy each other's company? So that we want to come together in worship and in fellowship and having potlucks and, and doing the different things. People are not going to be drawn to Jesus through us if we are always at each other's throats about everything. No one wants to be a part of that. Outside of the kind of serious error the Gnostics presented, we should be loving and merciful and gracious with each other. And that's that distinction. That's that line. And Paul even wrote about this in Ephesians 4.32, saying we should be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As cheesy as this may sound, this is what it looks like when we become real. Pinocchio went from wood to flesh. 
we go from death and darkness to life and light. And that life is eternal and growing and looks more and more like Jesus every day. So the question is, what are we going to do? Will you pray with me?